A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England. Episode 112, On the Crest of a Wave. And welcome back everyone. I hope you had a great Christmas, New Year and all that sort of thing. I am delighted to inform you that we all had a good one here. Far too much drinking and eating, but hey, it's a feast, so why not? You have very probably forgotten where we'd got to. After all, it's pretty much a month since I've been on the air. So, just to remind you, the Black Prince has just recorded one of the greatest ever feats of English arms on the field of Poitiers. So, on the 10th of October then, John Lecoq, Geoffrey Hamlin and Thomas the Messenger arrived at the court of King Edward in great haste, in great excitement and gave great news. There'd been a great battle. The Black Prince had been victorious. Oh, and look, here's the helmet and surcoat of the King of France. And do you know why I've got them? Because, by the way, the King of France has been captured. Well, you could not have imagined such a result, and a cloud of euphoria rose over England. It rose over Bordeaux in Gascony to boot. Poor old King John came in a procession into the city, and everyone came to point and stare. Spare a thought for poor old John. He'll spend a fair proportion of the rest of his life in a gilded cage, being poked at through the bars. Treated with every courtesy, no doubt. But every day must have hurt like hell. Meanwhile, Charles of Blois had been released from the tower by Edward for a whopping ransom of 58,000 quid. He travelled over to Brittany and immediately had to keep hopping around from place to place as he desperately tried to get his ransom payment together, because Lancaster was there too with the young Duke of Brittany. And by this time, the whole place had fallen to him, with pretty much the only exception being the city of Rennes, which was to be saved after a nine-month siege, partly at least by a young French warrior called Bertrand du Guesselin. Men like Knowles then held large areas of Brittany for the king under a kind of a contract. The king specified his territory and gave him the right to exact a pâti, or local tax, or extortion, however you happen to view it. Knowles then gave some of the money to the official Breton state and kept the rest for himself. Edward had been partying, predictably, and of note, incidentally, was the April 1357 tournament where the aged P. Isabella turned up to take part. Well, I say aged, she was of course only 66, but by August 1358 she would be dead, with her heart buried next to her beloved and betrayed Edward. It used to be said that Isabella had been locked up in Castle Rising and had gone potty. In fact, it's pretty clearly not true. Edward saw plenty of her, and was clearly as upset as you would be when she died. 
In France, there was panic and mayhem. But good golly, Miss Molly, the panic and mayhem had only just started. We are looking at the tip of the panic and mayhem iceberg. The stock of the nobility, and Charles the Dauphin himself, of course, were at an all-time low. I mean, after all, fighting is the nobleman's job, his reason for existence. Us peasants spend our lives grovelling around in the mud for centuries, and then this happens, the useless so-and-sos. In one village in Normandy, the villagers attacked the knight and his squire, shouting, There go the traitors who fled from the battle! In Paris, the houses that had built up around the walls were knocked down to make the place defensible. Chains were hung across the streets, and they waited for the barbarian to arrive at the gate and start eating their children. In Paris also, the long-established alliance between the French king and the city oligarchs was under severe strain, and it will break with a vengeance in 1358. The estate's general met and subjected Charles the Dauphin to a level of control most distasteful to a French king, or a French heir indeed. Then, as we've said before, France has always been, and still is, more decentralised than England, since it was until much later a federation of regions gathered under one king. Under the pressure of defeat, it increasingly fell apart, as each region refused to send money and obedience to a king who was unable to protect them, and they looked to their own protection. Elsewhere, local noblemen sometimes cast off their allegiance to the king and set up their own mini-states, plundering as they went. Although at this stage Charles the Bad was in a French prison, Philip, his brother of Navarre, was still holding out in Normandy, now joined by local mini-kings and English free companies. By March, the Prince of Wales negotiators have arrived at a truce with the negotiators of Charles the Dauphin, not to be confused with Charles the Bad, by the way. By May 1357, the prince had arrived with his royal captive in Plymouth and the entourage travelled through the English countryside with a deal more poking through the bars going on. There was a massive turnout in London to see King John arrive and a big party. From all sides, the people of London pressed forward to see the King of France pass by. It took three hours to get from Westminster to Lancaster's little bijou pad, Savoy Palace, which was to become King John's home. That's a journey of one mile and should take 20 minutes. Pretty girls were hung in cages above the procession, showering gold and silver leaf as they passed. Guilds proudly drew up their men in their liveries, in the words of the herald of John Chandos, and then there was dancing, hunting and hawking and great jousts and banquets as at the court of King Arthur. And meanwhile, wide swathes of France still burned. English louts crossed the channel in search of plunder and found captains willing to lead them. Despite the truce, men like Robert Knowles and James Pipe pillaged their way round Normandy and the Seine Valley. Meanwhile, all this English triumph and French disaster, along with the burnt Candlemas campaign, persuaded the Scots that enough was enough. They finally agreed terms with Edward through the Treaty of Berwick in 1357. David was released, on condition that he paid a ransom of £67,000, an enormous sum for Scotland, but small enough to be contemplated, and free from the threat of Edward Balliol as king, the Scots were able to stomach the idea. 
and the distraction of trying to raise the money, and the fact that King David was, of course, on a bound not to fight Edward until his ransom was paid, kept peace between England and Scotland for a couple more decades. Before long, a proposed permanent peace treaty also emerged from the conversations between John and Edward. The negotiations were given fresh urgency by the news that Charles the Bad had escaped from prison in France. Very bad news indeed for the beleaguered French government. And John was predictably desperate to escape captivity. It's been quite interesting reading the various different interpretations of Edward's attitude towards the negotiations. And I think there are three streams of thought, each of which depends on your view of the bloke, basically. But first to the terms of the treaty itself. The main terms were land and money. Edward was to be given most of southwest France, kind of like the old Eleanor of Aquitaine, Aquitaine, the one that included the Poitou. But the big kicker was that this land would be held in full sovereignty, not in homage from the King of France. So just like it had in theory been before Henry III had signed those rights away. Plus, Edward would keep Calais, of course. Then money. The King of France was to pay one million marks. That is a breathtaking sum of money. Remember that Richard the Lionheart had been ransomed for 150,000 marks, and that had seemed unthinkable at the time. So, back to those three lines of thought then. Plenty of modern historians take the view that Edward was being perfectly reasonable. After all, the Treaty of Guine had given Edward a lot more land than was on offer now. Normandy, for example. France was a much bigger and richer country, so not surprising they should have to stump up more cash. Then number two is the traditional view, that Edward was as mad as a box of cheese. His demands were quite clearly bonkers, and so he must have known it, and have been simply trying to restart the war. Oh, and as further evidence, look at all those English adventurers now feasting on the wounded body of the French. Probably that was Edward, secretly encouraging them to give him a causeless belly. The view I espouse, which I don't claim for my own by the way, is that Edward was not out to cause war. Actually, he sent a number of agents to try and stop those English adventurers, only to find out that he really had no more control over them than the French did. No, I think that Edward by this stage was living in a parallel universe and did actually think that he was being reasonable. But I cannot personally subscribe to the view that £1 million was ever likely to be acceptable or payable by the French. I think that by this stage Edward had lost touch with reality and I have to say you can understand why. At the moment everything he did turned to gold. He really thought this absurd demand could stick. My father would have deployed Longfellows, whom the gods would destroy they first make mad. Quote. Edward was making demands as daft as the reparation demands on Germany after World War I, and the results would be pretty much the same. A treaty that would last only as long as one side was incapable of fighting back. A treaty that solved nothing fundamental. Anyway, the terms were sent off to the Dauphin and the Estates General for implementation. No doubt the negotiations were conducted with John in London in peace and quiet and respect. And if so, they were conducted in an atmosphere entirely divorced from reality. 
John was just as out of touch as was Edward. Many parts of France were in the grip of the Jacquerie, a popular uprising that had torn control from the Dauphin. His ministers were murdered in front of him. Charles of Navarre had seized control and was forcing the Dauphin to do his bidding. Paris was in open revolt. And then there were the companies. Now again, this is a history of England, not a history of France, so I can't spend the time I should. But much of the disapprobation of those 19th century historians for Edward focus on the destruction of France by the free companies that Edward's victories made possible, and with the suggestion that Edward encouraged them anyway, in spite of the truce and the peace. In fact, Edward had no desire to encourage them, and actively tried to stop men travelling across the Channel to France. But the Gascons in particular, and the English soldiers already on the continent, were beyond his power to stop. As far as Edward was concerned, the actions of men such as Robert Knowles in pillaging France gave him a real problem. Paradoxically, he now needed a strong monarchy in France, because if he didn't, then he had nobody with whom he could negotiate an effective peace treaty. So, free companies, what on earth am I talking about? Essentially, if you wanted to earn loads of money with France on its knees and leaderless, then this is what you did. You got yourself together a nice group of soldiers, set yourself up as a band, then attacked a nice looking castle, set yourself up there and pillaged the surrounding countryside or held it to ransom. Or you made a deal with the leaders of a few groups like this and you set out on a march through some unpillaged part of France, and like a plague of locusts, stripped it of anything of value. These free companies, as they were called, could be a handful of men, or they could be very substantial, thousands strong. Let's take, for example, the career of one Arnaud de Servol, who became known as the Archpriest, because he'd held an ecclesiastical benefice, even though a layman. He's a nasty piece of work, and make no mistake. He'd actually fought at Poitiers in the army of the Count of Alençon, but the archpriest was not a man who laid great value on loyalty. He was greedy, and he was fickle. By 1357, France was already subject to roving bands of men of, say, a hundred to maybe a few hundred, and the archpriest was one of them. But in May 1357, he took it a step further, he created what was called the Great Company by inviting other captains to join with him. And then with an army of 2,000 men, they spread out over Provence. And it wasn't until 1358 that the Pope finally bought him off as he threatened Avignon. Then for a period, the lunatic was put in charge of the asylum when the Dauphin employed the archpriest to work on his side against other companies, which the archpriest used as an opportunity for some royally sanctioned murder. Finally, in 1362, he was captured, but then he was ransomed. Later that year, he led companies to Lorraine, and in 1364, he was back in the southwest. The most amazing thing, really, is that the authorities were forced constantly to turn to the very men who were destroying them, in an attempt to get rid of others. A bit like Vortigern in the 5th century, bringing over the Saxons to fight the raiders from the sea. At one stage, the Pope actually got the archpriest to lead a crusade, 
which is a clear demonstration of just what a moral maze the papacy found itself in. Eventually, in 1366, the archpriest met the almost inevitable end, murdered by his own men. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There is no doubt that life in almost all areas of France became one of uncertainty and terror. At any moment, a group of barbarous murderers could appear at your village completely out of control with no one to restrain them. If you were lucky, they would take your money and leave. If you are unlucky, they'd rape your family, kill you, and then take your money and leave. France for ten years was in freefall. To illustrate the point, Here's a chronicle entry from a chap called Jean de Vanette. The loss by fire of the village where I was born is to be wept for. The vines in this region were not pruned or kept from rotting. The fields were not sown or ploughed. There were no cattle or fowl in the fields, no lambs or calves bleated after their mothers. The pleasant sound of bells was heard, but not as a summons to divine worship, but as a warning of hostile intentions. These free companies, incidentally, were not just a French phenomenon. The ultimate was the White Company, led by a chap called Sir John Hawkwood. Hawkwood was the second son of a tanner from Essex, but by the time he died in 1394, he was the most famous mercenary in Europe, the toast and hero of Florence, rolling in dosh. Edward, while often hopping mad with the English mercenaries who were messing up his negotiations, wasn't sympathetic to John's plight either. Eventually, as the Dauphin refused to sign the agreement, he did consent to renegotiate. The Second Treaty of London in 1359 reduced the ransom to a mere half a mil. But in return, he was to get Normandy, Brittany, Maine, Touraine and Anjou. Right, OK, so that's OK then. Frankly, I think Edward was beginning to suffer from something of a superhero complex. And true enough, France was at his mercy, ravaged by internal dissent, the uncontrollable ambitions of Charles of Navarre, savaged by hordes of free companies. And yet the Dauphin again said no. I only have to take your hat off to the guy. He had nothing left to fight Edward with but his pride, and so that's what he used. And so in 1359, Edward was forced once more to go to war. The plan was to march through France unstoppable and take the ancient city of Rheims and there be crowned King of France, where Clovis had been baptised in 496, where Louis had been crowned in 816. It was the ultimate symbol of the French monarchy and Edward was going to take it. 
From the start, the weather was a hideous nightmare. Edward's army was unopposed, but struggled at a snail's pace through a quagmire. By the time they appeared before the walls of Reem, they looked like a bunch of drowning rats. Worse, it soon became clear that Reem wanted to have nothing to do with Edward or the English whatsoever, and Edward had no way of getting inside. He didn't have the siege capability. So Edward was forced to turn aside and wander through France, ravaging and pillaging as he went. During which, incidentally, one of his household was captured and had to be ransomed back. The name of that chap was the scourge of every English schoolboy, Geoffrey Chaucer. And then in April 1360 came Black Monday, when the heavens opened and delivered a hailstorm of such proportions that thousands of English horses and men were killed. The campaign was essentially a draw, an impasse, a stalemate. The French couldn't throw Edward off their land, Edward couldn't get into their cities. And deep down, I suspect Edward had now had enough. I mean, it had been fun and all, but he was now 47, and would rather spend a few evenings in with Pippa than wandering around the French countryside, pillaging and destroying. And anyway, this was a superstitious time. And after seeing your own army decimated by hailstones, you had to wonder if God was trying to tell you something. The Duke of Lancaster, the golden child, the man touched by genius, is supposed to have said to him at this point, You can press on with your struggle and pass the rest of your life fighting, or you can make terms with your enemy and end the war now with honour. All the negotiations up to now had taken forever, month after month of painful and ultimately fruitless haggling. At the little village of Bretigny Nishart, the negotiations now took precisely one week, from the 1st to the 8th of May. The deal was the one that had been staring everyone in the face. Edward would renounce the throne of France and would get Aquitaine in return, the old Aquitaine, the big Aquitaine, the Eleanor of Aquitaine, Aquitaine, but none of this Normandy, Anjou, Brittany stuff. And the key thing again was that Aquitaine would be held as of right, not held from the King of France. The only problem was that the ransom for King John was still enormous. The Treaty of Bretigny was not yet sealed. The idea was that they'd sort out all the boundary disputes. And then when that was done, then Edward would become the sole overlord. Whether they'd ever get to that point remained to be seen. The Treaty of Bretigny of 1360, which would never be fully ratified in France, could be seen as something of a missed opportunity, a tragedy of not knowing when to stop. If Edward had moderated his demands for money... Who knows what might have happened? But then, while I know that hindsight is the ultimate crime of the historian, can we really see England with a chunk over the channel surviving long term? In the end, you've got to think it was bound to go sometime. Anywho, that's ahead of us. For the moment, Edward was back in England by the end of the year and considered his job done. John was released to go and raise the ransom back in France once the first instalment was received in 1361. Unfortunately, he died in 1364, and because some of the technicalities had never been finished off, the treaty had never been ratified, something which would end in bum-biting before too long. In the 1360s, Edward's authority and reputation 
were pretty much as high as he get. And in the comfort and security of his reputation, Edward began to provide for his children. The royal loins had, of course, been pretty active, and he and Pippa had five sons. The two youngest, Edmund and Thomas, were really too young to worry about, but the top three needed jobs. The eldest and heir was, of course, Edward the Black Prince. And at the time, England looked absolutely set. When Edward Senior popped his clogs, Edward Junior would be there already the model of a Christian and chivalric prince. Did you but care to look for it, the prince had his own character flaws, a certain arrogance, a love of splendour, a lack of the subtler diplomatic touch. But on the crest of a wave, all of this was blown away by his success and charisma. Edward and his son no longer felt the need to abide by the rules anymore, and a great example of this came in the admittedly jolly romantic story of the Black Prince's marriage. So let me reintroduce you to Joan, the niece of Edward II and the Black Prince's cousin. She's acquired the title of the Fair Maid of Kent, or more sarcastically, the Virgin of Kent. Joan was already the belle of the court, known for her beauty, gaiety and extravagance. We've already heard something about the shenanigans of her life, married to the Earl of Salisbury, but reclaimed by her lover Thomas Holland and released from Salisbury by the Pope to be remarried to Holland. Well, in 1360, Holland died. Probably he always remained the closest to her heart, because when she died, it was Holland's tomb in Stamford where she asked to be buried. But without a doubt, she and the Prince of Wales had it going on as well. So in 1361, against all the rules really, Edward and the Black Prince got the Pope to give the cousins special dispensation to marry. It's not just that we have cousins marrying here, that's not that unusual. It's more that in making such a match, King Edward was throwing away the most shiny of golden opportunities to make a glittering alliance through marriage, and there can hardly have been any bachelors as eligible as the Black Prince. And with Joan aged 32, the prince and Joan would have to get on with the business of producing heirs pretty quickly. So they break the rules, but there's no evidence that either of them ever regretted the decision. It's hard to get any real evidence of personal life from this far away, but there's the odd glimpse of the two of them walking hand in hand in the cathedral in Bordeaux, of the prince's letters addressed to my dearest and truest sweetheart and beloved companion, and that contrary to rumour, his father obviously approved and helped seal the deal. Anyway, we weren't talking of love, were we? We were talking about how Edward provided for his sons. After the marriage, the Prince of Wales was also made Prince of Aquitaine, and off to Aquitaine he went to rule a court which, for a while at least, could compete with most for magnificence. Next up was Lionel, now 22, he was married to the great Irish heiress, Elizabeth de Burr, and had become Earl of Ulster and acquired all her inheritance, even though Elizabeth herself died in 1363. In 1362, the king made him Duke of Clarence. But from a purely English point of view, Ireland was something of a mess. You had kind of three groups. There were the native Irish with their distinctive dress, law, customs and church. There were the recent English, who were also completely separate, having brought their English language, law and customs with them. 
but in the middle is a muddle, the Anglo-Irish. Basically, these guys, the original English settlers, have gone native. They've adopted local customs and dress, and often language as well. But don't get the impression that this meant they were more acceptable to the native Irish. It just felt extra super sneaky, as the O'Neill wrote to the Pope in 1315. For the English inhabiting our land are so different in character from the English of England, that with the greatest propriety they may be called a nation of utmost perfidy. Lionel started off with a great deal of energy, charging around at the Irish, trying to put them in their place and expand English effective control. But the whole thing defeated him, and his efforts ran into the sand. It was just impenetrable. So in 1366, he instituted the Statutes of Kilkenny, something of a major milestone along the sad story of England's relationship with Ireland. The start of the statute stated the problem clearly. Now many English of the said land, forsaking the English language, manners, mode of riding, laws and usages, live and govern themselves according to the manners, fashion and language of the Irish enemies, and also have made diverse marriages and alliances between themselves and the Irish enemies aforesaid, whereby the said land and the liege people thereof, the English language, the allegiance due to our lord the king, and the English laws there, are put in subjection and decayed. So the statutes of Kilkenny tried to get things back to the good old days, when men were men, and women were women, and small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri. The English were forbidden on pain of losing their lands to marry the Irish, or adopt Irish dress, or use Irish names. They couldn't make any appeal to Irish law. They couldn't even play Irish games such as hockey, but had to stick to archery or the lance. Irish minstrels and storytellers were banned from English lands as agents of evil and sneakiness. Lionel then threw up his hands and in 1366 fled the shores of Ireland for the glamour of Milan. His statutes stayed behind and effectively separated the English and Irish for three centuries or more. And so to John of Gaunt. Well, his future seemed to be pretty much mapped out anyway. He had married Blanche of Lancaster and inherited the massive Lancaster estates when the glamorous Henry, Duke of Lancaster, died in 1360. His sister-in-law, Maud, also died and even more came to him. Sir John was effectively to be king in the north, even to the extent of Edward lobbying for him to become David of Scotland's heir. Neat and tidy it might be, on the crest of a wave he might be, but there is the traditional presence of the cloud no smaller than a man's hand. Edward's age becomes more obvious. Jousts and tournaments still go on, but Edward now watches rather than participates. We know that at this time his armour and clothing get let out of it to compensate for his increasing girth. Time is passing. But worse, his companions, the men who helped him build this glorious story, they're passing too the Duke of Lancaster, as we've heard, the main architect of his success, died in 1360. William Bohoon, the Earl of Northampton, died, the young Earl of March, and a host of other captains such as Reginald Cobham, Thomas Holland, they die. Edward's court and companions are changing. 
Edward began to withdraw slightly from court life and parliamentary life as well. There's evidence that Philippa's health also is not good, and as a result, for the first time, we begin to hear genuine stories of the traditional infidelity of kings and the appearance of the name of Alice Perez. But we'll leave Alice for the future. There was a substantial rush of people making donations, which was so nice, especially just before Christmas. So there are a number of thank yous I need to do. The most exciting, if I may say, and just to plant the seed of the idea, was Oak's donation, because it's a monthly one, and that is super exciting, I had to tell you. But also Bill, not the first donation, Bill, thank you. And then to all of you others, many thanks indeed for your generosity. James, Miguel, David, Shannon, Harvey, Mariah, Philip, Madeline, Mark, JD, Andrew and Timothy. And then thanks to all of you for listening, to all your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes and Facebook. Good luck everyone and have a great week. <laughs>